Chapter Nine of With Fire and Sword. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines. With Fire and Sword by Samuel H. M. Byers. Chapter Nine. Sherman's army floats across the Tennessee River at midnight. Washington at the Delaware, nothing compared to this. We assault Missionary Ridge, an awful battle. My capture. On my return from my home to the regiment, I found it had been transported to Memphis, where, as a part of General Sherman's Army Corps, we were now to make a forced march to relieve Rosecrans' army at Chattanooga. Chickamauga had been lost. The Union Army lying under Lookout Mountain was starving, and its destruction almost certain. We made now the march of four hundred miles from the Tennessee River at Florence in twenty days without incident. On the 22nd of November, 1863, we beheld the heights of Lookout Mountain and Missionary Ridge. November 23, 1863, and the Great Battle of Chattanooga was about to begin. The victorious rebel army, 65,000 strong, lay entrenched along the heights of Missionary Ridge and on top of Lookout Mountain. My regiment was in Sherman's Corps that had just hurried across from Memphis. We had marched twenty miles a day. Now this corps was to form the left of Grant's forces, cross a deep river in the darkness, and assault the nearly inaccessible position of Bragg's army. That night we lay in bivouac in the woods close by the Tennessee River. We very well knew that one hundred and sixteen rude pontoon boats had been built for us and were lying hidden in a creek nearby. We had almost no rations for the army. As for the horses and mules, they had already starved to death by the thousands and were lying around everywhere. Rosencrantz's army had been virtually besieged and was about to starve or surrender when Grant came onto the ground and took command. When Sherman's corps got up, it was decided to stake all on a great battle. If defeated, we should probably all be lost. All the men in Sherman's corps who were to make the first great assault realized that, and they realized also the danger we were now to encounter by attempting to cross that rapid river in the night. Midnight came, and all were still awake, though quiet in the bivouac. At two o'clock we heard some quiet splashing in the water. It was the sound of muffled oars. The boats had come for us. Every man seized his rifle, for we knew what was coming next quietly boys fall in quietly said the captains spades were handed to many of us we did not ask for what as we knew too well quietly two by two we slipped down to the water's edge and stepped into the rude flatboats that waited there be prompt as you can boys there's room for thirty in a boat said a tall man in a long waterproof coat who stood on the bank near us in the darkness Few of us had ever before heard the voice of our beloved commander. Sherman's kind words gave us all cheer, and his personal presence, his sharing the danger we were about to undertake, gave us confidence. In a quarter of an hour a thousand of us were out in the middle of the river, afloat in the darkness. Silent we sat there, our rifles and our spades across our knees. There was no sound but the swashing of the water against the boats. We had strange feelings the chief of which was probably the thought, would the enemy on the opposite bank fire into us and drown us all? 
Every moment we expected a flash of musketry or a roar of cannon. We did not know that a ruse had been played on the pickets on the other side, that a boatload of our soldiers had crossed further up, and in the darkness caught every one of them without firing a shot. Only one got away. Who knew how soon all of Bragg's army might be alarmed and upon us? In half an hour we were out on the opposite bank and creeping along through the thicket, a spade in one hand, a rifle in the other. What might happen any moment we knew not. Where was that escaped picket? And where was Bragg's army? Instantly we formed in line of battle and commenced digging holes for ourselves. We worked like beavers, turn about. No spade was idle for one moment. Daylight found us there, two thousand strong, with rifle pits a mile in length. Other brigades got over the river, pontoons soon were down. Still other troops, whole divisions were across, and forty cannon were amassed close to the crossing to protect us. What a sight was that for General Bragg when he woke up that morning at his headquarters perch on top of Missionary Ridge. All that day we maneuvered under heavy cannonading and drove the enemy from hill to hill at our front. Some of the troops did heavy fighting, but the rebels only fell back to their great position on the ridge. That night my regiment stood picket at the front. The ground was cold and wet, none of us slept a wink, and we were almost freezing and starving. We had not slept, indeed, for a hundred hours. It had been one vast strain, and now a battle was coming on. All that night we who were on the picket line could hear the rebel filled batteries taking position on Missionary Ridge to fight us on the morrow. The morning of the 25th dawned clear and beautiful. Instantly whole divisions of troops commenced slaughtering each other for the possession of single hills and spurs. At times the battle in front of Sherman was a hand-to-hand -hand encounter. My own brigade was so close that the rebels even threw stones down upon us. Over to the far right, Hooker's men were in possession of Lookout Mountain, and were breaking in on the enemy's left flank. It was two o'clock when our division, my own regiment with it, received orders from Sherman to fix bayonets and join in the assault on Missionary Ridge. General J. E. Smith led the division, and General Matthews, our former colonel, led the brigade. We had to charge over the open and by this time all the cannon in the rebel army were brought to bear on the field we had to cross. We emerged from a little wood, and at that moment the storm of shot and shell became terrific. In front of us was a rail fence, and, being in direct line of fire, its splinters and fragments flew in every direction. "'Jump the fence, men! Tear it down!' cried the colonel. Never did men get over a fence more quickly. Our distance was nearly half a mile to the rebel position." We started on a charge, running across the open fields. I had heard the roaring of heavy battle before, but never such a shrieking of cannonballs and bursting of shell as met us on that charge. We could see the enemy working their guns, while in plain view other batteries galloped up, unlimbered, and let loose at us. Behind us, our own batteries, forty cannon, were firing at the enemy over our heads, till the storm and roar became horrible. It sounded as if the end of the world had come. Halfway over we had to leap a ditch, perhaps six feet wide and nearly as many deep. Some of our regiment fell into this ditch and could not get out. A few tumbled in intentionally and stayed there. I saw this and ran back and ordered them to get out, called them cowards, threatened them with my revolver. They did not move. Again I hurried on with the line. 
All of the officers were screaming at the top of their voices. I, too, screamed, trying to make the men hear. Steady, steady, bear to the right, keep in line, don't fire, don't fire, was yelled till we were all hoarse, and till the awful thunder of the cannon made all commands unheard and useless. In ten minutes, possibly, we were across the field and at the beginning of the ascent of the ridge. Instantly the blaze of rebel musketry was in our faces, and we began firing in return. It helped little. The foe was so hidden behind logs and stones and little breastworks. Still we charged, and climbed a fence in front of us, and fired and charged again. Then the order was given to lie down and continue firing. That moment someone cried, Look to the tunnel! They're coming through the tunnel! Sure enough, through a railway tunnel in the mountain, the greycoats were coming by hundreds. They were flanking us completely. Stop them, cried our colonel to those of us at the right. Push them back. It was but the work of a few moments for our four companies to rise to their feet and run to the tunnel's mouth, firing as they ran. Too late. An enfilading fire was soon cutting them to pieces. Shall I run over there, too? I said to the colonel. We were both kneeling on the ground close to the regimental flag. He assented. When I rose to my feet and started, it seemed as if even the blades of grass were being struck by bullets. As I ran over, I passed many of my comrades stretched out in death, and some were screaming in agony. For a few minutes the whole brigade faltered and gave way. Colonel Matthews, our brigade commander, was sitting against a tree shot in the head. Instantly it seemed as if a whole rebel army was concentrated on that single spot. For a few moments I lay down on the grass, hoping the storm would pass over and leave me. Lieutenant Miller at my side was screaming in agony. He was shot through the hips. I begged him to try to be still. He could not. Now, as a second line of the enemy was upon us, and the first one was returning, shooting men as they found them, I rose to my feet and surrendered. Come out of that sword, shrieked a big Georgian, with a terrible oath. Another grabbed at my revolver and bellowed at me, to get up the hill quicker than hell. It was time, for our own batteries were pouring a fearful fire on the very spot where we stood. I took a blanket from a dead comrade near me, and at the point of the bayonet I was hurried up the mountain. We passed lines of infantry in rifle pits and batteries that were pouring a hail of shells into our exposed columns. Once I glanced back, and, glorious sight, I saw lines of blue coats at our right and center storming up the ridge. In a few minutes' time I was taken to where other prisoners from my regiment and brigades were already collected together in a hollow. We were quickly robbed of nearly everything we possessed, and rapidly started down the railroad tracks toward Atlanta. While we were there in that little hollow, General Breckinridge, the ex-vice president of the United States, came in among us prisoners to buy a pair of Yankee gauntlets. I sold him mine for fifteen dollars, Confederate money. General Grant's victorious army was already over the ridge and in rapid pursuit. Taking the ridge and Lookout Mountain cost the Union army well on to six thousand dead and wounded. The rebels lost as many or more, so that twelve thousand human beings were lying dead or in agony that night among the hills of Chattanooga. Not long before, 30,000 had been killed and wounded on both sides, close to this same ridge. 42,000 men shot for the possession of a single position. That was war. That night, as the guards marched us down the railroad, we saw train after train whiz by, loaded with the wounded of the rebel army. The next day, when they halted us to bivouac in the woods, 
we were amazed to see quite a line of union men from east tennessee marching along in handcuffs many of them were old men farmers whose only crime was that they were true to the union they were hated ten times worse than the soldiers from the north these poor men now were allowed no fire in the bivouac and had almost nothing to eat they will every one be shot or hanged declared the officer of our guard to me i do not know what happened to those poor tennesseans shortly after we northern prisoners were put aboard cattle cars and started off for libby prison at richmond most of us never to see the north or our homes again end of chapter nine recording by dion gines salt lake city utah